Welcome to Health Trust Candid Conversations. This is a conversation series where we highlight physicians, clinicians, and supply chain leaders who are innovating, caring for those in need, and working to improve human life. In this conversation, I talk to Dr. William Payne, orthopedic surgeon and program director from Franciscan Health, a 13 hospital system in the Midwest. Dr. Payne holds a master's degree in epidemiology and health services and is deeply involved in Franciscan Health's COVID response team. He talks to me about universal masking, the latest COVID transmission dialogue, and current complexities of COVID testing. While this was an episode originally focused on telehealth and resuming care, it's also about banding together, innovating workflows, and transforming healthcare. Dr. Payne reminds us that when we align, anything's possible. I hope you enjoy this episode. So my name is William uh, Payne. I'm an orthopedic surgeon by training. I'm part of Franciscan Health, uh, which is a 13 hospital system in the Midwest. So what are you seeing there within your facility compared to maybe where we were three or four weeks ago? In the Chicago market, we have generally trended down until about a week ago. Um, when we started, are starting to have an uptick in the number of new cases. Um, and Chicago is on a five-phase plan, and Illinois is on a five-phase plan. So we were uh, in phase three, and then when we transitioned to phase four, which basically allowed for um, some indoor dining at about 25%, outdoor dining, um, and opening up with a few more businesses, hair salons, and things like that, um, mm-hmm. we started to see a slight uptick. And it's not entirely clear whether that's a function of moving phases or is that a function of, you know, some of the other civil unrest and dynamics that were happening here in the Chicago area in the last few months. Right. And as part of that phase four there in Chicago, um, I'm not sure there, I think there are 17 or 18 states that are mandating masks in public, but um, do you have that in place or is it more of an elective masking kind of strategy? It's, uh, that's a great question. And so uh, we are, we straddle the Indiana border. So on the Illinois side, they have mandatory masking. On the Indiana side, it seems to be more voluntary. Um, And so the governor of Illinois has been very proactive around um, making sure that people wear masks as one of the, you know, guiding principles. On the Indiana side, they've taken a a much uh, more liberal approach, if you will. Um, And they're actually at phase 4.5, and they've been there and we're supposed to go to phase five, but it's been frozen because there's been an uptick of cases on the Indiana side. So it's uh, we have sort of you know dual dynamics, and people cross back and forth across the border for a variety of goods and services, including healthcare. And so yeah. uh, managing that is is definitely interesting and sometimes uh, controversial. Yeah, I bet. I mean, it's it's one of those things where we talk about it a lot. And I think we're still across the country, you know, running right about a rate of, you know, 500 um, deaths a day from COVID-19. And, you know, the modeling would suggest that if we just went to a universal masking strategy across the board, that would drop down to about 100, 150 deaths per day. 
So it still remains a mystery to me why that's not something that, you know, is almost a governmental mandate. And, uh, you know, I guess putting your epidemiology hat on, um, it's just, I don't know what your thoughts are about that, William, but it just feels very strange to me. Yeah, I, I would say that um, certainly from the epidemiological standpoint, it makes perfect sense. I think the practical issues around it are complex because, you know, not that long ago, call it four weeks ago, there were plenty of people in the Chicago metropolitan area that really couldn't get access to masks. So they were using, you know, whatever they had, a bandana, you know, to to act as a mask. Mm-hmm. And so I think that also created, you know, its own set of problems. But to your point, I do believe that, you know, universal masking would be helpful. And uh, I'm not sure why uh, it hasn't really been adopted. Um, about a week ago, there's a group out of Scripps and UCSD, Department of Chemistry, sort of aerosol science group, who are, you know, advocating um, that this is essentially an airborne transmission. And then the group out of Harvard, Harvard's Department of um, Population Medicine, published a viewpoint in JAMA just a couple of days ago, um, arguing the, the contra side, right, that essentially it's a droplet um, transmitted disease, and then if it was aerosolized, it'd be much more like measles and viruses that have, you know, doubling rates of 18 to 20 versus, you know, two, two and a half. And I think there was a editorial that was written that said, look, this is not, you know, one or the other. It obviously is a spectrum. Um, <laughs> droplets and aerosols right. are all part, part of the same continuum. But the thing that both sides did agree in both of their pieces was exactly what we just talked about, right? The the simplicity of universal masking, social distancing, avoiding those areas of high density like restaurants, um, you know, bars, things like that. And so that was at least common ground that they both could land on. Um, have you heard any of that kind of conversation around the aerosolization or has that really hit your radar screen? It, it has. Um, and I know that there was a group of scientists who petitioned the World Health Organization <clears throat> to consider aerosolization as a principle around the transmission of, of the virus. And I, I think your point is well taken around. It is a spectrum. Um, and there's so much that we don't understand about this, I mean, because um, clearly there is some sort of dose response uh, because people are being exposed to it and having no symptoms and other people are getting overwhelmingly sick. And it doesn't seem very clear, at least in my mind, um, how this is all working because here in Illinois and Indiana, there isn't much in the way of flu, so to speak, going around or things where people are coughing a lot or sneezing a lot, um, and we're still seeing cases. So it's it's a little bit uh, baffling to me that that it's only droplets. So I think it is a combination of both droplets plus aerosolization. Um, and I think we'll we'll learn more as as we go along. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the the viral load piece, and I would certainly agree. I was talking to one of the new um, diagnostic 
laboratory companies earlier today, and that's one of the things that they brought up was, you know, it's all about viral load and, and timing, um, and no diagnostic test can tell you from the moment that you've been exposed to somebody, um, you know, how long it's going to take for you to potentially get infected or not get infected. And um, one of those, you know, pieces is just very difficult variable to understand as you, as you start to talk about contact tracing and how often do you test people who are exposed to someone who tests COVID positive and the frequency of that testing. And then you get into the complexities of the testing turnaround times. And it's just, to your point, there's just a lot of unknowns and a lot more that we need to learn, you know, about how to track this moving forward. Right. And I think the uh, testing issue is hard for people to understand, including, you know, I'll call healthcare professionals. Um, and it's certainly difficult for lay people to understand. And I think the, uh, the way I've started to explain it to my lay friends is really, it's like pregnancy testing. It's all about when you take the test. If you right. take it too early, it's negative. If you take it later, it's positive. And if you wait long enough, it's real obvious. And the same thing is sort of true with, with this, this exposure and the virus. And I think that, you know, it's just hard for people to sort of get their hands around that. Yeah, and no, actually that's a good, that's a good analogy and, and a good way to, to think about it. So along the testing lines and, um, and kind of getting into the topic that we were originally planning on discussing, which was really more um, focused around resuming care and, you know, what processes and protocols that, you know, you have in place there, um, you know, to bring back patients back into the hospital. So let's just say for the elective cases, are you testing all elective cases? Are you doing it more based on symptoms or what's your current protocol that's in place? Yeah, our current protocol today is we test people at a minimum of 72 hours or 48 hours prior to their procedure um, to confirm that they're negative, and we ask them to self-quarantine for the three days uh, after that testing occurs. And then for bigger procedures, we're testing them uh, the day of with a rapid also. Okay, okay, interesting. So you're doing both. Yes. I was just gonna say the reason that we're, we're doing both is is because there have been a few papers that have suggested that um, if the patient is COVID positive and you're doing a major procedure, uh, that their risk of uh, ending up in the ICU is on the order of 20 to 40 percent. Um, and so, you know, exercising an abundance of caution is really what we've, we've done, and, and we'll see how it goes. What about just the workflow and the environment, um, William? Anything else that you there within Franciscan have kind of built into the the workflow that's, you know, obviously different than it was pre-COVID? Uh, so there's a lot, lot that's different. Um, so all of our front desk and personnel that are, you know, out dealing with the public have glass barriers um, mm -hmm. out of plexiglass. Um, we're moving to contactless payments. Um, we're trying to streamline uh, the process of forms and move into a digital environment for those things. Uh, the workflows uh, 
have been altered. So we're only seeing in-person patients every 15 or 30 minutes, depending on the physical layout of your office and how many rooms you have. Uh, in terms of testing itself, we uh, originally were only doing the testing out outside in a pole barn. Uh, mm -hmm. And so to, min to minimize aerosolization. Uh, and now more recently, they've decided that uh, our consensus expert panel has decided that it's not a real risk of, of aerosolization. So the testing can be done in standard exam rooms. So we've, it's a constantly moving and evolving you know, target. And so uh, it's been a learning process for all of us. Yeah. And so you mentioned the, the decrease, or I should say maybe the, the time needed in between, you know, live face-to-face -face patient interactions. So what about telehealth? How has that uh, impacted, you know, your practice? So telehealth has been uh, hugely a part of our practice now, and it was virtually non-existent before. I, I would say mm -hmm. that you know, Franciscan Health was really in its infancy, and uh, by the second week of April, um, we had, they had turned on the telehealth floodgates, and everyone was really uh, ramping up and seeing patients virtually. Uh, and that was a it was a game changer for us because it allowed us to stay connected to patients, uh, and it. It's definitely created some new workflows, um, mm -hmm. but it's been very, um, very helpful in terms of maintaining the relationships and getting people access who desperately needed it and wanted it. Right, right. No, I totally agree. And I think in one of your, the comments that you just made a few minutes ago, William, you, I think you mentioned a consensus committee. Can you tell me a little bit yes. about that? Yeah, so we have... Um, within Franciscan Health, we created several different kinds of consensus committees. Um, one was really all on the ambulatory side, so all of the ambulatory-based practitioners, as well as there was a committee on the hospital side, hospital sides, so because there's multiple hospitals. And then within that structure, there were what we call subject matter expert committees. So if you think of the ID folks and the pulmonary folks, um, and the critical care medicine folks, they had a consensus committee to try to figure out what are the best protocols to use uh, for the patients who are extremely sick. Um, were we going to use convalescent plasma? Uh, what medicines were most appropriate? How we would allocate them? All those kinds of things sort of were worked through the consensus committee to try to get the best thinking, uh, first of all, out there and then document it and then disseminate it. Mm -hmm. And have you found that um, the recommendations from those committees, have they been pretty well adopted or are you having pushback from any of the other um, caregivers or not so much? Uh, that's a great, great question. I think uh, in terms of adoption, one of the things that made the cons consensus committee more effective was there was sort of shared representation. Mm -hmm. So across the system, we had representatives from, if not every, but most every uh, facility 
And so that made it more likely to be accepted. And then within each facility, there were also uh, sort of, we call them COVID roundtables. And sometimes they would meet weekly to discuss whatever issues might be related to um, the surge of patients that we were seeing. And so those weekly sort of smaller sessions within a facility um, allowed you to work through something if it came from a consensus committee that you didn't agree with to figure out how you were going to manage it. So, yeah, it. it worked well. And those, I presume those consensus committees are multidisciplinary, meaning that they have, you know, administrative representation, physicians, nurses, et cetera. Yeah, they're, they're multiple, not only are they multidisciplinary um, from an administrative and nursing standpoint, but we had ER physicians and surgeons, ICU doctors, infectious disease. So a variety of people uh, around the table so that if an issue came up, like one of the big issues since we happened to have a GME program was around medical students. And we you know, quickly yeah. decided that all med students we were going to take out of the facilities um, because of, A, for their safety, number one, and then, B, uh, the shortage of PPE. And the same thing was done with volunteers because most of our volunteers were 75-plus. So that was like one of the first things that happened. That's interesting. I haven't had a chance to really talk to anybody um, in regards to the medical students. So what's what's the current thinking in regards to what would the toll gate or toll gates need to be to get the medical students back engaged? Well, that's a that's a great question. I think the uh, the big thing with the medical students is figuring out how to get them into the environment and to get them to be able to participate. Um, and the real, the real challenges are around things like social distancing. So um, if you have a clinic and you've got staff and you've got residents and then you add medical yeah. students, social distancing becomes more challenging and more difficult. Uh, so that's kind of the first barrier. Then the second barrier is really around PPE. And so some institutions um, have gone to a protocol where they have the medical students bringing their own computers and their own PPE um, just to try to reduce the stress on the system. Uh, and then the last thing is, is really um, creating sort of uh, rules of engagement. And our institution has decided that, you know, med students won't be involved in the care and management of known uh, COVID patients or PUI patients um, as a sort of an institutional guideline and principle. Yeah, that's interesting. That's really um, <clears throat> totally understandable, but obviously at the same time, you know, really unfortunate because, uh, I mean, obviously I remember, and I'm sure you do as well, William, you know, those, especially the last couple of years of medical school where you're so deeply embedded, you know, into the clinical rotations for, you know, two years um, I just wonder what that's going to mean for them and what that looks like moving forward, because that's obviously such a critical component of their education. That's a, that is an excellent point. And I think one of the, the things that's trying to be determined by the, the folks at AAMC and some of the other, you know, sort of educationally responsible institutions 
is what does this look like? Because if you can't bring these med students into the environment and they get and have them get hands-on training, um, will they be ready to be, you know, interns? Will they be ready to receive a license? And what does that do to the whole, if you call it the medical industrial complex, if you suddenly have a workforce gap, um, yeah. whether that's three months or six months or whatever the time interval is. I mean, you can't have uh, someone go through their entire third year and not have ever listened to a hard or laid hands on a person um, and then expect them to be ready to be an intern. Uh, this isn't practical. Yeah, it, no, it's, you know, to be honest with you, William, I haven't thought too much about this, but um, you're right. I mean, it shifts the whole curve to the right, the whole ecosystem to the right. And at a time when um, staffing is already, you know, a challenge, you just wonder what the ripple effect of this is going to be, you know, years down the road. So um, don't have any answers for it. Obviously, I'm just sort of thinking out loud, but that's something that, um, you know, we'll really have to kind of keep an eye on and see how that plays out and whether it does delay um, certain entries into you know, internship, you know, residency, et cetera. I wanted to go back to the consensus committees just for a minute because I, I find this really interesting. Sure. And and I would imagine that um, some of the physicians you probably have engaged were, were probably engaged prior, but I bet you you have some physicians who hadn't necessarily been engaged in this kind of work before, and now they are. Um, are there plans to sustain those type of committee structures and try to sustain that type of physician engagement, meaning, you know, how do you take the lessons learned from those entities and then carry that forward? So I, I think there is the um, desire to keep folks engaged and to keep them uh, motivated. I also think that there was a lot of fatigue <laughs> that was associated with the uh, process because there yeah. wasn't any roadmap, right? So, you know, it's not not you should turn left here. It's, well, do I turn left? Do I turn right? Or do I go straight? And so um, I think that, that most of the physicians, uh, and especially the ones who hadn't been as involved, were really um, excited about the opportunity to participate and sort of uh, see the inner cogwheels of the machine, if you will, um, up close and personal and to see how decision-making gets made and the implications of one decision versus another. And I think all of that engagement actually, uh, you know, fosters a safer and more uh, reliable set of processes. And so I know at our institution, we want to see that continue to happen. And I think it's really just making sure that um, people feel like you're moving the needle. And that's the other good thing I would say about this process in particular is the needle was moving very quickly, and so yeah. people could see real progress. Whereas sometimes in healthcare, as you know, the needle doesn't seem like it moves no matter how much force you apply to it. So uh, I think it was a good thing. Yeah, and, and no doubt. And I think, you know, as we all know, that's one of the keys to physician engagement, you know, specifically is there, 
willing to participate, but they want to make sure or at least feel that, you know, their participation then results in action, right? And so in this particular case, uh, obviously that was, I'm sure, readily apparent, and I'm sure they've learned more about PPE and supply chain than they probably (laughs) necessarily wanted to know about um, in the past. But to your point, and this is kind of, you know, where we at Health Trust are interested in all this, um, or at least one component of what we're interested in, is then how do you parlay that engagement really into a broader, you know, value analysis conversation and value analysis project that is, um, or process, I should say, that is sustainable? Well, I think I think uh, just sort of doubling down on this notion of speed of execution, I think for physicians, they want to see things happen. That's what we're used to. And mm-hmm. so um, figuring out how to work at a pace that's faster and perhaps sometimes uncomfortable, but, but faster, um, gets them more engaged because the more progress that they see, um, the better and more engaged we are. And so I, I think it's really, that is the challenge that I would say to those that are leading is to, is to come away from each, you know, whether it's a meeting or sequence of meetings is what real progress are we making? Because if you're, we're meeting to meet, physicians lose interest in that very quickly. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great point, William, and it's something that we've talked about here, you know, and Ed Jones, our CEO, has, has talked about it as well, that we sort of, you know, um, implemented and learned through the early stages of the, you know, the COVID pandemic, and we're certainly continuing to do it now, is, you know, these weekly metrics, these weekly deliverables, and trying to get everybody kind of focused on, okay, what did we really accomplish this week? And it doesn't necessarily always need to be a real big thing, but it's all about momentum, right? Just keeping the momentum and and making sure that people feel like we're constantly making progress. And so, um, no, I think it's a great point and something that we're talking a lot about um, here at Health Trust as well. The other thing I would say about uh, this physician engagement is the one other sort of benefit of of the pandemic, if you will, has been alignment because everyone mm-hmm. was aligned around around trying to create solutions, trying to figure out the best processes, and trying to uh, be helpful in any way they could. And so if we can maintain, and I mean we as in the health systems in general, maintain that sort of aligned focus, then I think anything is possible. Yeah, no, totally agree. Um, yeah, when you've got, you know, that type of singular focus on just one um, thing, you know, COVID-19 that everybody is fighting together, then, you know, that singular focus obviously is a very powerful, very powerful thing. Um, any parting parting comments? Uh, the only, only comment I would have is, is that the uh, work that you all did uh, during the pandemic was very helpful. Uh, those summaries of and recommendations that you all put together uh, under your leadership and your teams um, made it much easier and faster for us to 
bring these consensus committees together and work through some difficult uh, processes. So I just wanted to thank you and to thank them and to know that that work uh, was a game changer and we greatly appreciate it at Franciscan Help and I'm sure all the other IDNs across that you support. Well, um, William, thank you so much for your, your time. I really appreciate you taking time to talk with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Trust Canned Conversations podcast. Please visit education.healthtrustpg.com to find additional resources for clinicians and your healthcare leaders.